Welcome to Explore History's podcast on the medieval knight, chivalry, and the modern world. I'm Dr. Scott McLean, and in this episode, I will lead you through a broad overview of British medieval history so we have some context for the many things that we will be covering in later podcasts to really get you thinking about why a concept like chivalry might develop and hold such importance in the medieval period. We finished the last podcast looking at the Norman Conquest in 1066. The victory of William the Conqueror over his Saxon foes ushered in dramatic changes that transformed the British Isles in all sorts of different ways. Politically, culturally, religiously, linguistically, legally, and even the landscape itself was dramatically changed. We see after 1066 huge numbers of castles, the Mott and Bailey, something which we'll talk about later. It was a way that the Normans were able to protect themselves from all the angry Anglo-Saxons that they found around them. Around these castles came towns, settlement from the uh, French territories. And so we have a new influx of people into the British Isles. We have new churches, new styles of churches coming in, much grander, big cathedrals. We get all sorts of changes like that to the landscape. And this is something which was going to have a dramatic impact. We see the population rising very quickly after 1066. But perhaps more significant was the strong link between England and the continent. As from 1066, all kings of England would also hold land in France. Therefore, England was being pulled into continental affairs like never before. So there's an awful lot that we need to take in, that we need to think about when we look at um, England at this time and the British Isles as a whole, the impact of the Norman Conquest. What we see is that after 1066, once when the Conqueror was able to establish his authority over the Anglo-Saxon population, he began to look further afield, to Wales, Scotland, Ireland. He was always busy in his French territories. And, and what we see is that the armed knight on horseback that won the battle at uh, Hastings in 1066, this becomes a feature of life in the British Isles. And so this is a major change, something that people would have noticed was quite different and um, changed, in many ways, the rules of war, how battles were fought. There's all sorts of things we need to consider to understand some of the developments which we're going to be talking about. Once William the Conqueror established himself, we see all these changes coming in. We have a whole variety of different rulers coming to the throne over time. Some of them strong, some not so. We've got Henry I, very strong ruler. He made laws, he expanded territory. But then following Henry came Stephen and Matilda. We see England in civil war. We see very weak rule. We see the church and barons grow in strength. There's no stability. There's territory lost. Henry II comes to the throne later on in the 12th century, and we see return to order and the stability of his grandfather's reign. We see at this time also, under Henry II, expansion into France, Ireland, and Scotland. The government was expanded, made more professional, more efficient, and this allowed for increased revenues to be used in governing what became known as the Angevin Empire. Yet despite these changes for the better, Henry was still plagued by difficulties and a great deal of trouble with the church and with his offspring. In the Middle Ages, a kingdom could prove difficult to hold. An empire was perhaps almost impossible. Maintaining control of territory stretching from Ireland in the west, Scotland in the north, to Aquitaine and Toulouse in the south 
required a great deal of time and energy. There were always a collection of barons and neighbouring rulers eager to benefit from the slightest weakness. Yet the greatest challenge to Henry II's authority came not from the barons or from a foreign ruler, but from the church. Henry's successful reform of government was in large part due to his choosing the right people for the job. Henry had chosen Thomas Becket as treasurer and in 1162 made him Archbishop of Canterbury, the top position in the church in England. It was an essential part of the king's policy that he should have as the head of the church a man that he met eye to eye with on the question of what should be the proper boundaries between the sphere of church influence and the jurisdiction of the crown. Henry was concerned with returning things to as they had been during his grandfather's day. During the Civil War under Stephen, there developed an increase in church power. Further, the clergy were claiming privileges which appeared to exempt them from the ordinary operation of the law. For example, if you were a priest and you committed a crime, you were tried in a church court, which were always much more lenient than a lay court. A layman, maybe committing the same crime, might be looking at hanging, mutilation, or at the very least loss of property. Clergymen might get some public humiliation. Henry wanted these individuals treated the same under the law as other criminals and believed the ultimate authority should always be the king's law. Henry believed that Becket supported his views and would accept a reduction of church power. But soon after being made archbishop, Becket's attitude changed and it was readily apparent that he was not of the same mind as the king. Becket on several occasions directly opposed the wishes of the king. The pressure increased and eventually Becket was forced to flee across the channel to the safety of a French abbey but he was supported by the Pope. Becket remained in exile for six years, until November of 1170. This was a period of stalemate in the dispute, with both sides appealing to the Pope, but little headway was made. On July 22, 1170, Henry and Becket reconciled, and Becket was allowed to return to his Archbishop of Canterbury. However, when he arrived, he was far from easy to deal with. We are told that in a fit of rage, and Henry was known to have his temper, he bellowed, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Whether Henry actually spoke these words is debatable, yet it is certain that he did not want to have Becket murdered. However, four of Henry's knights believed that this was what he wanted, and leaving Henry in France, they crossed to England, rode to Canterbury, where on December 29th they killed Becket in his cathedral at Canterbury. Some writers have gone so far as suggesting that Becket sought martyrdom, he believed that the only through losing his life would he solve the disputes between church and state. Such would appear to be the case, according to Edwin Grimm, who was present when the murder took place. Grimm describes Becket's actions as those of a true martyr. Realizing that the end is near, Becket says a prayer and is struck a blow in the head. Edwin Grimm, the chronicler, is attempting to hold him up and protect him from further harm. Behold the simplicity of the dove, the wisdom of the serpent and this martyr, who presented his body to the strikers that he might preserve his head, that is to say, his soul in the church, unharmed. Nor would he take any forethought or employ any stratagem against those who slay the body whereby he might escape. O worthy shepherd, who gave himself boldly to the wolves in order that his flock might not be torn to pieces. Grimm's invaluable description clearly suggests that Becket had chosen martyrdom, that he believed that this was the only solution to the growing problems between the church and state. The murder of Becket in his cathedral resonated throughout Europe. And although Henry had not wished his murder, he took responsibility for the actions of his knights. Henry was forced to do public penance. The knights who committed the crime also did penance in the form of a crusade to the Holy Land. 
By 1172, there was compromise in most of the issues which had forced the conflict, and a state of relative peace between the church and state had been established. Now, Henry II's problems were far from over. He still had to contend with his children. In the years following the Becket controversy, Henry II made some changes to his administration of his vast empire. Many of the changes involved his children, Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, and John. The government of the realm was strengthened throughout. It was his policy to construct an individual government for each major division of his empire, which he could control through both directives and visits. Such a system was an effective way to govern his empire while not disturbing the native customs of each region. However, Henry II was becoming too remote from his subjects. At the best of times, medieval government only worked when it was personal. Henry therefore had to rely on others to maintain his authority and presence. In many cases, was left up to his children. His eldest son, Henry, heir to the throne, died in 1183. Despite the fact that he likely would not have made a good king, his death triggered a series of events which would destroy the empire. His next son, Richard, later Richard the Lionheart, was kept busy in Aquitaine, keeping the barons there in line, and we might add, acquiring quite a reputation as a military leader. Upon the death of his elder brother, Richard became next in line, but Henry II did not trust either his son, Richard, or Geoffrey, and hinted that his youngest son and favourite, John, might be given preference. Richard became increasingly isolated in Aquitaine, and proved that he was disinterested and ignorant of his father's possessions in Britain. Richard, for his part, was interested in little more than building castles and going on crusade. And then we have John. John was given the Kingdom of Ireland and sent off to see his new realm, which was quickly being brought under Norman rule. And finally, Geoffrey. Geoffrey was the Count of Brittany. He was being manipulated by Philip of France to fight his father. With his death in 1186, John became second in line for the throne. At the same time, Henry II took ill, lost much of his energy for a good fight. A serious revolt emerged in Richard's territories, in which Richard believed his father was responsible. Philip of France quickly became involved and, with Richard's approval, demanded that Henry should recognize Richard as his heir to the entire empire. Henry refused, and Richard joined Philip. Richard did homage to the French king for all the continental fiefs. Richard, along with Philip of France, waged war against Henry II, and in a short time forced Henry to submit. Richard was recognized as sole heir to the empire, and shortly after, Henry II died. But what does this soap opera of events tell us about the Angevins and medieval society in general? Well, first of all, in the years after 1066, the Normans were able to establish themselves, but it wasn't clear sailing. It wasn't an easy thing. Henry II and medieval rulers in general faced constant pressures from both outside and within their kingdoms. There were continuous struggle against barons, against the church, against their own children, all of whom were anxiously waiting the opportunity to increase their own power. We learned that the relationship between church and state and the role of the church within medieval society was very significant. The priestly caste were well-organized, well-disciplined, resolutely led by the Pope and his court. They had established a dominating position within English society. The Becket Affair was the direct result of this increased growth of church power, the efforts of the state to curb this power. In other words, the two groups, church and state, were working to redefine their roles, determine which would be the ultimate force within medieval society. This soap opera we call the Angevins demonstrates that there were limits to royal power, that even an energetic and resourceful king like Henry II might have difficulty maintaining peace in his realm.
And things would only get worse when a weaker or disinterested king was on the throne. This is the fact we see through the course of the 13th century, where we have kind of an ebb and flow, the problems with John leading to Magna Carta, the Henry III, who is challenged with civil war by Simon de Montfort. Then we get strong kings for the end, Edward I, very powerful. We see this change back and forth. What we see in the 13th century throughout all of this is that England was expanding. The population had expanded to probably about 5 million people by 1300. It was still based upon feudalism, but it was expanding and trade was expanding. What we see after this, from 1066 to 1300 then, is a difficult period for many kings, an ebb and flow of weak ruler and strong ruler, fights between church and state, between family and friends and everybody else. But we see expansion. Expansion of Norman rule from England into Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. We see expansion of the population from probably about 2.5 million to 5 million. We see expansion of trade, merchant activity. All of this is happening, but that would change dramatically from 1300. From the late 1200s, we see Europe moving into what's known as the Little Ice Age. We start to see a series of very intense storms. Cooler weather, shorter summers, shorter growing seasons. Um, and after 1300, Europe is hit with a series of famines, of flooding, drought, all sorts of things, plague. All of this hits in the early 14th century. And this adds to the difficulties of life. It adds to the tensions between the different factions within medieval society. And so we have from 1300... We have a series of um, plagues hitting livestock, very serious. We see a lot of storm activity. Um, parts of Britain were devastated by intense flooding, uh, which saw great um, destruction of crops and livestock and so on. This meant that people were in a very weakened state by the 1330s. They'd been through really three decades of very difficult times. Now, if you're wealthy, you're one of the rich barons, this probably isn't affecting you too much, although it is cutting into your, your movable wealth. But it was the poorer classes which were really being affected by this. And then it would get worse. And it would get worse because it would be hit with the plague. This was the Black Death. In 1348, Britain is hit with the Black Death. The bubonic plague was characterized by the appearance of buboes or boils in the groin and in armpits. Dark blotches appeared on the skin and it affected the nervous system. Many victims displayed very strange behavior. It was actually one of the least infectious diseases. It's caused by a parasite that was carried by fleas which lived on the backs of black rats. Therefore, it was rapidly spread as rats moved both by land and sea in merchant vessels. And so coming Overland through from the Middle East, coming into the Mediterranean, and then hitting all the European ports, and eventually hitting the southern ports like Southampton and Portsmouth and um, others along the coast of England, and then spreading inland as people took the those products, um, whether it's grain or wool or other things, off of a ship. The rats came off too, and so did the fleas. And so it spread. So there were the two types of plague at this time. Bubonic, which was spread by 
the bite of the fleas, or pneumonic plague, which was more serious. This occurred when the bubonic plague attacked the lungs, and the infection could then be spread through sneezing or coughing, and it was almost always fatal. Disease was so rapid that a healthy family could have breakfast together in the morning, and by noon, some or all family members might be dead. Simon of Camino described priests or doctors who, quote, were seized by the plague while whilst administering spiritual aid, and often by a single touch or a single breath of a plague-stricken, perished even before the sick person they had come to assist. The plague degraded and humiliated its victims. Everything about it was disgusting. Quote, all the matter which exuded from their bodies let off an unbearable stench, sweat, excrement, spittle, breath, so fetid as to be overpowering. It struck Europe in 1348 and within two years had wiped out close to half of Europe's population. When it reached England in June of 1348, it raged throughout the summer into October and November, reaching a peak in December before calming down in the cold weather of January of 1349. Priests and others administering to the dying were extremely vulnerable, and therefore many priests simply refused contact. 1349 was a most difficult year, as it was through the course of this year that almost all villages and towns in England were afflicted. And this year, the plague did not progress steadily inland as it had in 1348, but it sprang up all over the countryside. Well, why is this? Well, it's the movement of people and rats. Like most medieval towns and cities, London was perfectly suited to the spread of epidemic. Sanitation was poor or non-existent. Chamber pots were emptied out the window into narrow lanes where it mixed with other human and animal refuse which gathered. Butcher shops dumped refuse into the same streets or drains. No one was going to become infected by drinking putrid water or breathing foul air, but such conditions meant that much of the population lived with dysentery, diarrhea, and a host of other ailments which left them in a weakened state. As well, such conditions were the perfect breeding ground for rats. Plague hit London early in 1349. Within a very short time, the existing graveyards were full. New cemeteries had to be opened. Robert of Avesbury states that one new cemetery was receiving 200 people a day between February 2nd and April 2nd. That would total about 18,000 people. Total deaths for London may have reached as high as 40 to 50,000. This in a population that at most was probably about 70,000. So what do you think this meant to the city? Well, it meant that many houses were abandoned, that no one was left to clean the streets, so refuse just piled deeper. No one was there to bury the dead, or at least they were afraid to do so. There was a disruption of trade and commercial life. Food was in sh great shortage because carters, carrying goods, refused to enter into the city. And many in London fled to the countryside to escape the plague, and this, of course, furthered its spreading. We see a fall in moral standards, an increase in crime and degenerate behavior. Apart from a few small pockets, all of Europe was affected. In Britain, hardly a single village escaped that you would not be, or that you'd be hard pressed to find a single individual who did not lose a friend or loved one. It's difficult to say how many people in Britain died. Chroniclers of the time varied greatly, without question, often exaggerated. This is understandable under the conditions they faced. One said three quarters of the people died. Another says only one tenth lived. Another says four fifths. Another a third. I think we have to admit there was a great deal of regional variation, but in general we're looking at something in the neighborhood of 30 to 45% of Britain's population perishing. 
This would mean that about 1.4 million people died in England alone. Such a loss could not happen without major socio-economic consequences. And landlords were hit particularly hard. They faced a shortage of labour brought about by all of the, the peasantry dying off. And that meant those that were left could demand higher wages. In some areas, wages may have doubled. There was also a great deal of movement as tenants shopped around for the best deal as landlords competed for tenants to work their land. Perhaps one of the most radical changes to come about was that the medieval laborer now had the ability and seemed determined to move about and choose his means of employment, no longer just being tied to the land. At the same time, the price of agricultural products fell dramatically. This meant cheaper food for the common people, but less money for landowners who produced and sold such goods. Also, manufactured goods which landowners would purchase rose in price so there were fewer artisans to make such goods. The decay of the manor and the manorial system was the immediate and permanent consequence of the plague. The Black Death inspired a great deal of social unrest, including the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, and it initiated many of the changes which we see developing over the course of the next few centuries. The educational system was hit very hard as universities lost many of their scholars, both young and old. This opened the door for new ideas and doctrines to be infused into the system as a new generation of scholars took over. Mortality amongst the clergy was exceptionally high, therefore the church was placed in a difficult position. Few qualified individuals were left after the plague. The best had died and the worst remained. Also, much of society had been disillusioned with the church in its failure to halt the progress of the epidemic, or place much of the blame for it on a corrupt church. Villagers noticed that their priests were as likely, in fact even more likely, to die from the plague, and others noticed that many ran from their duties in an effort to save their own skin. And following the plague, many of the clergy that survived held out for extra pay or abandoned their flock in search of higher pay, not the most admirable behavior. Was the plague not, after all, God's punishment on the wicked? And many clergy, monks, and bishops died. So the decades following the plague therefore saw the church decline in prestige and authority to the point that some have argued that it played a role in the development of the Protestant Reformation. Without question, the Black Death combined with the poor conditions prevalent throughout the calamitous 14th century initiated great social and economic changes in Britain that would be felt for centuries. Now at the same time that all of this pestilence is going on and the population is being hit extremely hard, we also have a period of intense conflict. And this was in the form, not just exclusively, but primarily in the form of what is known as the Hundred Years' War. The Hundred Years' War was a prolonged struggle between France and England, in large part over French lands held by the kings of England. It lasted from 1337 to 1453. It's not actually a hundred years, but about 116. And it wasn't always continuous fighting. Many periods of prolonged truce so the term 100 Years' War is a little misleading. Since the time of William the Conqueror, English kings had held land in France. The holding of lands in France by English kings had given rise to conflict with the King of France on many occasions. Under Edward I, who reigned from 1272 to 1307, the exercise of French overlordship, the payment of homage, and the extent of English possessions became a major issue. French kings confiscated lands held by the English kings on several occasions, acts that led to war, but nothing was really resolved. In May of 1337, Philip VI of France confiscated the French possessions of Edward III. 
Not a good thing to do because he was one of the strong rulers that England produced. And therefore, England and France were again at war. So this is seen as the beginning of what we know as the Hundred Years' War. What made this war or series of wars different from the previous Anglo-Saxon conflicts? Well, the answer is that the English King Edward III had a claim to the French throne. In the 1330s, matters worsened. The French were continuously pressing Edward's territory in Gascony. In 1333, the Anglo-Scottish Wars were once again reopened, and Philip of France actively supported the Scots. The final straw was when Philip VI confiscated Edward's French territories. In 1338, after elaborate preparations, Edward III led an impressive army across the English Channel to invade France. His plan was to invade France through the Low Countries, to attack on a huge scale with both his force and that of his continental allies. This initial campaign from 1338 to 1340 accomplished little apart from driving Edward far into debt. In 1340, Edward put forward a formal claim to the French throne and assumed the title King of France. Edward called himself King of France from 1340 to 1360, but gave up the title in return for sovereignty in Aquitaine, uh, Calais, and elsewhere. Again in 1345, Edward sent armies into France, one to Brittany and another to Gascony. In 1346, Edward himself led an army of 10,000 men through Normandy towards Paris, then northward, encountered the French royal army at Cressy in August of 1346, won a decisive victory over the French. The victory allowed Edward a year later to take the important channel port of Calais, which remained in English hands right until the Tudor period. Edward's campaign of 1346-47 brought him great prestige and destroyed the French control of the region. A decade later, his son Edward, the Black Prince, won another major victory at Poitiers, Although badly outnumbered, the English routed the French, captured their incompetent King John the Good, and returned to England with a royal prisoner. The Black Prince, for his part, won acclaim as, quote, the most valiant prince that ever lived in this world, throughout its length and breadth since the days of Julius Caesar or Arthur. These losses, combined with the devastation provided by the Black Death, left France in an extremely weakened position. In the late 1350s, there was very little the French could do to halt the English advance. In 1359, the Black Prince once again led an English force into France all the way to Burgundy, virtually unopposed. In 1360, the two kingdoms concluded a truce on terms exceedingly favourable to Edward III, which saw Edward drop his claim to the throne but acquire vast territories in France. However, all the English successes were lost over the course of the next two decades. Well, how? Well, we see a revival of French royal authority. The inept King John died in 1364, leaving a more energetic and very capable son, Charles V, on the throne. Charles had the good fortune to be served by one of the heir's great military leaders, Bertrand de Gusplin, reputed to be, quote, the flower of chivalry, also reputed to be one of the ugliest men in France. But he was recognized as perhaps the best general in Europe. Under his leadership, the French adopted a policy of harassment, which avoided major battles, but won many skirmishes. This at a time which saw Edward III losing his ability to lead effectively, while his son, the Black Prince, took ill. In 1369, England's French possessions gradually disappeared until Edward III's death in 1377. The English only held Calais, Cherbourg, and a little territory around Bordeaux. In 1369 to 1399, the English did very poorly, and no major battles were fought, although there was almost continuous fighting. 
Decades passed before the English were once again under the leadership of Henry V, able to recover their losses in France. Henry combined conquest with colonization, giving out grants of land, uh, of this newly conquered lands, to his soldiers and administrators at the expense of the native population, something which led to a great resentment. Henry V was once again able to expand English possessions in France. Yet these gains would be short-lived. In 1453, at the close of the Hundred Years' War, England had lost all of its continental possessions. At this point, you think things would get better, but it doesn't, because there are problems at home. The next 30 years would see what became known as the Wars of the Roses, a civil war which would tear England apart. It gets its name from the two main opponents in the struggle, the House of York, which had a white rose as one of its badges, and the House of Lancaster, which had a red rose. Henry V was one of the ablest of all English kings, yet his legacy left England in a difficult position. When he died in 1422, he left an infant son of not nine months of age as heir. His ambitious conquest of France, which he had begun in 1415, was far from complete. The French wars had increased the royal debt considerably, and this debt would be rapidly increased over the next two decades. As well, Henry V's preoccupation with France had led him to ignore some serious problems at home. In particular, England was in a state of lawlessness. All of these factors, directly or indirectly, played a part in the outbreak of civil war three decades later. In 1435, English fortunes in France received a blow and England was put on the defensive. The question of whether to continue the war or to make peace with France now became a serious issue of debate in England. The costs of the wars had continuously mounted and Parliament was becoming increasingly reluctant to vote taxes for an unsuccessful war. It would seem that none of these problems were insurmountable. Some crafty diplomacy in France could have kept the English territories in France and all kings from time to time had to deal with their nobility. All that was needed was for Henry VI to be half the man his father was, and all was solved. Unfortunately, he was not. The personality of the reigning king was a decisive element in medieval politics, and England required strong leadership. However, the country did not receive it from Henry VI. In a few months of assuming the role as king at the age of 16, Henry lavished a small circle of his counselors with most of the resources available, enriching them considerably and alienating those who did not benefit from his generosity. Why he did this is unclear. Yorkist chroniclers described Henry as a simpleton who was easily dominated by his counselors. At any rate, within a few years of Henry's coming of age, the government's difficulties had become acute. Major diplomatic miscalculations led to the reopening of the war with France at a time when England was ill-prepared to go to war. And the result was the loss of all of Henry V's conquests in France, in northern France. At home, Henry VI's debts increased steadily. In 1450, stood at £372,000. This is at the time when the king's annual income was about 33000 Complaints mounted against the greed and corruption of Henry's leading ministers and the oppression and lawlessness in the shires by those who had the backing of those in power. The result was a struggle between rival dynastic lines that plunged England into 30 years of civil war. So this long period of civil war, the Wars of the Roses, had a substantial and long-lasting impact upon English politics. It did not bring about the end of the feudal baronage, as is often believed. In the 14th and 15th centuries, 27% of England's noble families became extinct, but this was in large part because they failed to produce a male heir. Only seven families were extinguished as a direct result of the civil war. 
Granted, it must have been difficult under such circumstances to find time to produce a male heir. The lessons learned during the wars prompted Henry VII to not make the same mistakes as his predecessors, and he set out to deliberately reduce the power of the nobility so they could no longer upset the peace of the realm. But more on that later. During the late Lancastrian and Yorkist period, there were at least a dozen magnates in England who rivaled the king in wealth and military strength. By 1509, there were only two. As a rule, it was the kings, noblemen, and gentry who were involved in the civil wars, and therefore the effects upon them were greater. Other influential groups, such as the clergy, lawyers, and merchants, escaped large-scale involvement and therefore were not greatly affected. England's lawyers were extremely cautious about getting involved. The merchant class, who controlled the cities and towns, proved very adept at keeping the warfare outside the city gates. As could be expected, both Crown and Parliament were affected by the Civil War. Parliament became much more of a tool for the ruling party as both sides tried to pack it with loyal followers who would look after their best interests. The Commons also lost some of its power and initiative as the King had more control and often rejected Commons bills that did not suit his interests. For the ordinary Englishman, the effects of the war were minimal. Life went on. There was relatively little material devastation. No major towns were sacked. In short, the wars did not produce the sort of devastation that the English inflicted upon the French during the Hundred Years' War, or that they might expect from the Scots. The chief social evil of the day that the ordinary Englishman faced was the ability of the nobles to defy the law and pervert court justice, so the commoner had no means of protection. Yet despite all of these difficulties, England was recovering ever so slowly, and many of the nobility could profit immensely from the wars. Well, there, we just covered about three centuries of medieval history in a very short period of time. But the point is that we really need to understand some of this background. We need to understand the chaos that was created, the difficulties that people were faced with, uh, because this ties in directly with the concept of chivalry, of why it became so necessary, why people look to it for guidance why it maybe acted as a break on the power of the nobility and the kind of brutal activities they often took part in. So as we will see in the next podcast, it is very important to understand this overall history and we can place the concept of chivalry and the role of the knight into that and I think gain a better understanding. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I will have the next podcast up very soon. Um, if you're interested, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, Cheers.